Hello, and welcome to another edition of Brussels Sprouts. I'm Andrea Kendall-Taylor. And I'm Jim Townsend. And we're so glad you can join us. Uh, Today on Brussels Sprouts, we are taking on the tensions in the transatlantic relationship that continue to mount on the back of European frustration with US actions in Afghanistan. Uh, On September 15th, it was the United States, Australia, and the United Kingdom that announced that they had established a new defense pact known as AUKUS, which is designed to bolster the Western security presence in the Indo-Pacific region. Notably, the AUKUS pact cost France a submarine contract worth billions of dollars. Uh, And while some have hailed the deal as an important strategic victory vis-a-vis China, it has simultaneously sparked outrage in France, Um, but also among other American allies in Europe. U.S. President Biden and French President Macron recently spoke over the phone and tamped down some of the tensions, Uh, but it does seem that this incident only contributes to this larger trend of increasing strain between the United States and Europe that we have seen on the back of Afghanistan and the presidency of Donald Trump. So this is, it's a big issue um, in the transatlantic relationship, and so we pulled together some of our favorite transatlantic experts to discuss this. We're really happy to welcome Tom Wright and Ben Haddad. Welcome to you both. Thanks, Andrea. Um, Just by quick background, for those of you who don't know Ben and Tom, Ben Haddad is the Senior Director of the Europe Center at the Atlantic Council. He's an expert in European politics and transatlantic relations. Uh, He has advocated for transatlantic unity in the face of Russian aggression, greater European responsibility, and investment on strategic matters. And his recent book, Paradise Lost, Europe in the World of Trump, makes the case for greater European unity in a world of new challenges and threats. So folks should check out Ben's book. And speaking of books, Tom Wright uh, also recently published his Uh, Aftershocks, Pandemic Politics, and the End of International Order, which you should also check out. Um, But Tom is the director of the Center on the United States and Europe and a senior fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy at the Brookings Institute. And he works on US foreign policy, great power competition, the European Union, Brexit, and economic interdependence. So, all right, let's get started. I think, you know, just to lay down where we are. Maybe Tom, I can start with you just for your very concise description of what what went down with the AUKUS announcement. If you can give us the view from Washington and then Ben, I'm gonna turn it over to you to talk about the view from Europe and especially uh, France's uh, reaction. Yeah, thanks Andrea and Jim. And it's great to be here and great to be here with Ben. Um, So, you know, I think any sort of description of this has to start with Australia rather than with the US. Um, and, you know, as we know, Australia had this submarine deal with France that was signed in 2016. It was signed by Malcolm Turnbull, who had just come in to replace Tony Abbott. Abbott had been sort of gravitating more towards Japan, you know, as the, as the option. Um, but the contract went to France. I would say that in the national security community in Australia, there was sort of reservations, or say from the beginning, you know, about the contract, and there were there were various problems over the year, but it came, over the years that followed. But it came to a head really earlier this year when there was sort of a hinge moment where Australia had to commit to another few billion that it was spending. Uh, it was basically sort of concerned about you know the 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 contract to date because it had been over budget and. 
and delayed, but also they worried about the strategic environment that they were in and that the subs, when they would be delivered, uh, wouldn't really be meeting sort of the challenge against China in the 2030s and 2040s. Um, and they believe that unlike in 2016, when the US option really wasn't even conceivable and now was actually um, a possibility. So they approached the UK and um, the UK then approached the US, uh, Australia followed quickly therein. And then they had a real sort of problem, which is how to handle this, you know, diplomacy, given that, you know, France is a key ally, has an important role in the Indo-Pacific, um, and uh, you know, and obviously will be upset if the if the if the contract shifted. Their assessment, which is just their view, I'm not sort of necessarily endorsing it, but I think it does have some merit and is overlooked a little bit. Um, is that had news of the negotiation leaked, it would have collapsed, right? That this is a very fragile sort of agreement because you know there was opposition from within, you know, the Navy to any sort of sharing of nuclear technology, and the non-proliferation community has its own concerns, and that if you got news of this out, right, that then the negotiations could come under pressure, and that had Australia cancelled the deal first and engaged in these negotiations the deal would never really have come off. And that would have been a calamity for US sort of strategy in the region and for Australian national security interests. So they kept it a secret. And therein sort of lies a problem with particular problem with France, right? Because as we know now, you know, when the, when the news was shared sort of hours before the official announcement, uh, all hell broke loose basically. And it was seen as a betrayal you know, by Paris, and I, I can see why they were sort of upset about that. But I would just finish with just underscoring, you know, a couple of points. The first is the Australians really do believe that they were very clear um, with, uh, with France that there were problems in this. The Australian press in the summer talked about alternatives. Morrison had a very frank conversation with Macron. There were some conflicting signals for sure later, but, you know, I think it's important to note that. And and the other thing is, I think it is an example of where um, the imperative of doing stuff in the Indo-Pacific, you know, did actually clash with transatlantic interests. I know everyone likes to say there was a way to have our cake and eat it too. You know, there's a way to have this deal and also do the diplomacy in the back end much better. Uh, I would really like to, you know, I would support that if it was possible. I'm not fully sure that was possible, actually. I'm not convinced that it was actually possible to, to sort of avert the problems with France through better diplomacy in the back end. I, I would like to have seen it done differently, but ultimately, you know, I'm not sure that that really would have made a huge difference here. Dan, over to you. Sure. Um, well, a couple of points. I mean, clearly, I think the, uh, the reaction in France, uh, the sort of earthquake that we've seen among the French political and defense establishment I think uh, was not primarily linked to the commercial uh, dimension, although it was a huge deal. Some of the numbers are exaggerated because Lockheed Martin has half of the contract. So Naval Group only had 40% of the contract, the French group. But nevertheless, I think you know beyond the, the uh, financial dimension of this, uh, it is clearly the breach of trust among allies and the secrecy with which this was arranged between uh, the United States, the United Kingdom and, and Australia that shocked uh, French uh, commentators, and especially, you know, at a time where um, France is the first EU uh, actor present in the Indo-Pacific, it has close to 2 million 
uh, of its own citizens in the region. It conducts freedom of uh, navigation operations in the South China Sea. It patrolled the Strait of Taiwan a few months ago. Just last month, participated to exercises with United States, Australia, Japan, or, or the UK. It basically has the same allies and partners as the US and the region, close partnerships with India, Japan, and of course, Australia. And so I think, uh, you know, this deal was seen also in parts of France as uh, being compatible completely with American interests. Um, and, and it's important to remember also, because I've seen, you know, some say, well, France wants to develop its own strategic autonomy or its own policy on China. So this is a result of this. But the France's Indo-Pacific strategy, the investment in relations with countries like Australia has been pushed forward by the most transatlanticist part of the French defense community as something that also showed, you know, uh, uh, defended French interests, but also showed France as a valuable ally within the transatlantic relationship, especially at a time where the U.S. has signaled its intention to rally its its European allies uh, in a strategy to confront China's assertiveness. So I think it's it's really, I think, incomprehensible that the U.S. did not find a way to bring in French in that agreement. From the Australian perspective, I agree with Tom's analysis. I think you know the the main thing that changed since the deal was signed in 2016 by Turnbull is a, a growing sense of threat, of imminent threat coming from China. Um, and you see this in the Australian political and, and media uh, debate. Uh, the, a lot of the budgetary and technical arguments are a little less convincing. You know, for example, uh, the, uh, the US offered the AUKUS alliance uh, uh, includes nuclear propelled submarines, but France has nuclear propelled submarines. It's under Australian request uh, at the time the contract was negotiated that uh, Australia went for diesel submarines, asked France to convert them to uh, diesel. And uh, some of the issues on delays and cost uh, are, are accurate. But with this new deal, Australia will be delivered submarines much later and probably more expensive than under, under this uh, deal. So it does leave Australia vulnerable for uh, a longer period of time. So, but, but the strategic assessment, of course, uh, I think is the primary one, which is that Australia, I think, saw this deal as a way to bring in the United States closer as a security partner in the, the Pacific. And in this respect, I think it's pretty clear that having, you know, the U.S. or France as, as a close partner, you would choose the, the former in the region, although I don't think it was either or. So from the Australian perspective, even though I think a lot of these concerns were not a community clearly to uh, to France. There's a communique on August 30th between the uh, ministers of foreign affairs where they reiterate uh, uh, the importance of the submarines contract. You can understand the Australian perspective. You can clearly understand the British perspective uh, of wanting to be brought in an agreement and an alliance like this. I think this is where it's the responsibility of the United States as the primary actor in such agreement to find a win-win and to un you know and to find a way to bring in Paris, maybe in the alliance, maybe in the, the new contract in a way or another, uh, the president or Secretary Blinken could have gone to Paris uh, and, and said, look, you know, you're losing this contract. It is what it is. Let's find out a new arrangement where we could also value your presence uh, in the uh, in the Indo-Pacific. Now, last word on uh, where we stand now. Uh, president Biden and President Macron spoke on the phone yesterday. I think that was a positive conversation. I think. Uh, the, um, the President Biden hit all the right notes on, uh, you know, recognizing France's importance in the Indo-Pacific, 
uh, uh, reiterating U.S. support for a capable and robust uh, European defense alongside NATO, and I know we're probably going to talk about this a little more, uh, and then um, um, pledging to increase support for the operation in the Sahel, where the two countries work together with other European partners against uh, terrorism. So I think that was positive, but it's important to understand that it's really unleashed a major debate in France with basically all the opposition left and right calling for France to leave the NATO Integrated Military Command. Um, so I think now what's really key uh, for France is to see concrete actions, especially I think on the European defense front. Uh, and uh, we have a few good windows of opportunity, maybe one with the uh, French presidency of the European Union in the first semester 2022 to really move uh, forward and push some concrete initiatives here. Um, but you know, thankfully we've, we've uh, navigated, I think the, the worst of the crisis this week. Hey, um, Ben and Tom, it is great to see you all. And I think what you all have said uh, today uh, is, I agree with it, and I think it's so helpful. And on Twitter, both of you have really done a wonderful job uh, providing your views and, and having a very balanced look at this at this big problem. Um, and and, um, and Ben, this is exactly what I want to uh, talk to you about right now is the, these next steps. My fear is that in Washington and in the White House, they're dusting off their hands right now after this phone call and the readout. And as you said, Biden hit all the right points. I think they're, they're going, OK, this, this, this is done. This is behind us. Let's move on. Uh, and, and, and I think there's expectations, uh, certainly in Paris and probably in the EDA in Brussels and other places where, OK, we're going to now we're going to make some progress because I think. It would be, you know, with the French uh, now, you know, going to be, uh, you know, running the EU uh, pretty soon in a few months that they're going to have the chairmanship. This is an opportunity for us to do something. And as you mentioned, that Macron and, and company will have an opportunity to present some, you know, concrete initiatives. My fear is a lot of problems are on the U.S. side in terms of our export controls, third country transfer, uh, tech transfer issues, uh, the ITAR. All these things that we know have been there a long time that are obstacles uh, for helping us actually partner and doing do to do more. So I'm I don't want us in Washington to walk away from this moment thinking that we've already done enough with the rhetoric, the phone call, we're done, and not take advantage of actually making some progress here, actually doing something. And for the U.S., that's going to be a heavy, heavy lift involving legislation and doing things that the bureaucracy has sworn never to do, not just because it's, you know, not because of an anti-French thing, but, you know, tech transfer, third country transfer, uh, which, which really holds back our ability to partner with European defense. So we've got a lot of work to do here in Washington if we're going to actually make some progress. Let me add one quick thing to, like, so, because I think, you know, there was also a lot of hope in the White House that this would be um, confined to France and that this wouldn't be an issue that would spread to the rest of Europe or other European allies. Can you, and, and uh, Tom, you should feel free to jump in too, kind of how would you characterize the broader European reaction? There's been different reactions from different corners. How, how could you also just, as we're just doing a little more scene setting, and I def will definitely jump into these things, but how would you describe the landscape of reactions? Yeah, a couple of points to your uh, question, Andrea. I think uh, 
you know, it's important, obviously, to contextualize it and see that it comes just a month after uh, transatlantic tensions over the withdrawal of Afghanistan. Some allies, uh, especially in Berlin and London, have uh, pointed to lack of consultation or coordination. Maybe they were mostly frustrated of not being able to influence uh, the US timeline and US decisions, but we have seen some pretty harsh reactions, especially in London, uh, over that, uh, the frustration obviously created by the travel ban for months. Uh, and all of this comes after four years of the Trump administration. It's important to remember, right, because uh, it might seem unfair for some folks in the Biden administration that they're paying a little bit for this, but there is a cumulative effect where Europeans are starting to ask, to wonder about U.S. priorities, uh, U.S. shift to uh, to Asia. And I think the asymmetry of power and the overall relationship that's leaving Europeans with little clout and influence in uh, in Washington, Washington decision making. And you add to this, I mean, this is inside baseball, but it does matter and, and all of us care about it. The fact that we still don't have an assistant secretary of state for Europe or a, a U.S. ambassador to, to NATO, to the EU, to Paris or Berlin. A lot of really talented individuals have been nominated for these positions, but we're still waiting to be confirmed. And I think this is also uh, um, an irritant in the uh, in the relationship, unfortunately. Um, but to the, Jim, to the point on uh, on expectations, you know, for me, there's two dimensions to this question. The first one is a lot of the technical hurdles that you just mentioned and the constant debate we have about uh, technology transfer of third party access to some of the European defense initiatives. Um, but then there's, I think, a, on the French part, a broader political expectation to have um, a to, to rethink how we, we think the, the relationship between the United States and Europe, where um, there's a sense, I would say, of um, schizophrenia coming from Washington when you look at it from Paris, where on the one hand, American policymakers, American presidents, three presidents in a row, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and now Joe Biden, have really signaled shifting priorities, have really put an emphasis on, on burden sharings and European uh, stepping up especially to defend their own security. You had crisis like Syria for a decade that seriously stressed European institutions with the migration crisis, with rise of uh, terror groups in the United States, you know, mostly deciding not to get uh, involved. You have President Biden um, uh, in his speech on the Afghanistan withdrawal now saying the United States is going to uh, focus its military intervention on vital, on defending vital national interests. Would that cover a crisis in the European neighborhood in Libya or uh, something comparable to the crisis in the Balkans in the 90s where Europeans were already powerless, I'm not sure. So you have this signal coming from Americans and at the same time, a lot of reluctance to embrace and support European defense effort, strategic autonomy, however we wanna call it, we can discuss this term in, in more detail, but I think the idea is just for Europeans to have the ability to defend their security and interests on their own. When I discuss this with American uh, experts or, or policymakers, they often say, well, that's mostly up for Europeans, right, to increase their capabilities and unity. Uh, and that's partly true, but the United States does have agency in this and the signals that it sends and the kind of conversation that it's having with Europeans. Um, you have a lot of uh, transatlantic pro-American uh, countries in Europe that precisely uh, are reluctant to embrace European defense efforts because they they, they fear that this could drive the United States out of the continent or be seen as an anti-American ploy. So I think this is where the United States has a responsibility to reassure its key partners in Europe and say, no, 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 we do need you to do this. This is for 
the alliance. We do need a, a strong and capable uh, European partner uh, because we're not going to bail you out anymore. And I think having now, you know, moving away from America, moving beyond America is back, which is the rhetoric of the first few months of the Biden administration, and now having a serious, frank conversation among allies and friends, not uh, among foes like under the Trump administration, but among allies and friends about this is what uh, we don't want to do anymore. This is where we don't want to intervene anymore. This is where we Europe, uh, Americans need you Europeans to, to step up. Uh, I think that's that's the kind of conversation in a way that uh, some in Paris are, are hoping for. Tom, do you think that Washington is ready for that conversation? I mean, there's been some signals from the Biden administration, I think per Jim's point, like phew, we had the phone call. I think we're okay, we're, you know, we're out of the woods and some calls for just to get back to business as usual. Um, so do you think Washington is ready to have that conversation or, or where, where do you think folks are? Yeah, I, I don't think they're quite ready actually. You know, I think I, I agree with Ben largely in terms of, you know, the, the issue. Um, you know, to me, I think there, there are sort of two issues that uh, mean, you know, the US is not, that the commitment is different than it used to be before. One is the is the pivot to Asia and the fact that the Indo-Pacific is, um, you know, is so strategically important to the United States. And I do think this is a really good sort of illustration of that. You know, this, I think that this is a big deal. I think it's a really important initiative. To me, it's an enormous success, you know, for the administration. Um, it did come at this cost in Europe. I, I'm not convinced that it was possible to avert that cost. You know, I, I do think that had the administration gone to France a little bit early and said what Ben said, you know, I think they still would have been really, really upset. Now it would have been in a little bit of a different way, right? The, the, the complaints would have been a little bit different, but we're talking a matter of days here as opposed to a matter of hours, right? We're not talking a matter of weeks so or months. Um, and I don't think France would have been happy with sort of an add-on, you know, in, in a non sort of, nuclear sub sort of way in, in AUKUS. I think they would have been wanted to be involved in the core and that was not possible. And I think it's still not possible. And, um, and that's a very unfortunate, but I think that's just sort of the reality, you know, that we're in. So I think it is, you know, so the first point is, I think the, the commitment is shifting because of Asia. And the second is political volatility here. You know, we don't know if Trump or DeSantis or someone else will be president in 2025, like it, Biden can't control that, right? There, there's Europe, America is now a variable for Europe. Uh, it's not a constant. Like we might want it to be a constant, but it's, it's not. And so I do think we need to have a frank conversation where we try to work together to prepare for this new era where hopefully the US is still deeply engaged, but it's different um, than it was before. Um, but I think that's gonna be very hard for for the administration to, to do that because it, it basically, you know, it contradicts the, the message, which is, you know, we're back and, and the transatlantic alliance has never been, you know, more important. But I do agree that it's, you know, it is, I think, where we need to, uh, where, where we need to go. Just on the Europe point, I, I think it's, you know, there was these statements by van der Leyen and others. I think it's not clear yet if it is, more widely shared, you know, I think France obviously worked really hard to get those statements. Um, but even if it's not, I think there is a broader concern that is widely shared, right? So if you add together 
you know, all of the different things that's happened over the last 10 months. I think, you know, there is a critique. European countries and leaders have been very, very reluctant to even articulate that to the administration until quite recently because they wanted to be, you know, positive, but they have been saying it to many, many of us. I'm sure you've all heard it, you know, too. And I think it basically, you know, is along the lines of what we were talking about, about whether or not, you know, US strategic priorities are shifting. You know, I, I, I agree with, with all of that. And I just wanted to add that in terms of the pan-European view, uh, I, I think, I think one perception that, 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 that they probably do share in all the capitals is that the U.S. is more unpredictable than it used to be. I think they're, you know, no one likes surprises. Uh, uh, no nation likes surprises. And a predictable partner like the United States is something that helps stability and helps them feel more confident in, in working with NATO and working with the U.S. I think what the U.S. has demonstrated is two things. One is an unpredictability that didn't used to be there. And number two, a question about confidence in terms of how we are going about things, um, whether it was Kabul, whether it was the uh, Indo-Pacific, I mean, uh, well, Nord Stream 2. I mean, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, a question and you, that, that, that is now a large, I believe, in European minds, also based on what happened with Donald Trump and, and, uh, and even George W. Bush uh, kinds of things, Obama kinds of things, where increasingly over time, we are surprising everyone. This, this Indo-Pacific thing, um, no matter what your view of it as a, as a strategic move, was popped on everyone. It was a surprise. And I think some were delighted and some were a bit stunned. And of course, we have problems with uh, in Paris and this, that type of thing. But it was unpredictable. And so, and so I think that's another problem, too, is that it, we, it didn't used to be that way, um, including this competence. We didn't used to have these kinds of of um, uh, problems with how we went about implementing things. That's becoming more the, the rule and the exception. So th that's just some other things I think are, are in the of European um, decision makers. Yeah, I, maybe just, I'm, uh, you know, that my question to you, Tom, was like, do you think the U.S. is ready for that conversation? I think one I think there the the support or the for for having this conversation about a more capable Europe is something that is gaining steam, gaining momentum. You hear more and more, you know, that broad support that yes, a more capable Europe is in the U.S. interest. I think one thing that gives some folks in Washington heartburn or kind of makes folks more reticent is that is that Europe hasn't yet articulated its strategic aims and objectives about like how that more capable Europe would be applied, right? Like, you know, there's a lot of conversation in Europe about the need to define Europe's own strategic interests. And I think, you know, without that, it still makes people in Washington really nervous that if Europe, if we do have a more capable Europe, then, you know, to what end does it really mean? Would that mean a decoupling or less of a pragmatic partnership between the United States and Europe? So A, I think it is helpful for Europe to, to do that hard work of kind of thinking through strategic interests. It's in uh, the United States interest to be part of those conversations, like you said, Ben. So I think that's one thing that kind of is putting the brakes on some of the momentum. But my question to you too is then what does that discussion look like in Europe? So you both have kind of talked, or everyone here has really talked about 
you know, more concerns in Europe about the reliability and the efficacy of the United States as a, as a partner, but there's still important differences um, about then where Europe should go. So you have people like the Secretary General Stoltenberg warning against, I think, you know, more European capabilities outside of NATO. A lot of the Northern European countries, the Baltics, where, as you said, Ben, that concern that if Europe is more capable, then it drives the United States away. Where do you think this discussion needs to go to get all Europeans on board? So from a French perspective, what's the thinking about how you bring Europe along with this vision? And I think it's a particularly important kind of thinking ahead to the, the strategic concept. I think the strategic concept will have to tackle this issue. And so what is gonna be the language that will work for all allies? How is, how is France thinking about bringing others along? Uh, well, unfortunately, France hasn't been very successful uh, historically in bringing others along. I think there's a there's a few reasons for this. Uh, I, I think in the last few years, maybe an excessive focus on the bilateral relationship with Germany or even the personal relationship with Chancellor Merkel to try to bring Germany along on a few French priorities, not only military, but also economic, at the expense sometimes of investing in relationship with other partners in Europe or understanding uh, the strategic culture, the geography, the concerns and sense of threats of partners like in Central and Eastern Europe, especially, but but also uh, elsewhere. Um, but, uh, you know, I think first, I, I think it's really important to uh, underscore that I, there's no incompatibility with, with NATO here. Um, when, you know, you were mentioning uh, Stoltenberg, um, even from a, from a U.S. perspective, if you hear uh, President Biden saying we're going to focus on vital national interests. I think there's no doubt in my mind or in French strategists or whoever in Brussels that uh, an Article 5 uh, violation, a threat to collective defense, would represent a threat to uh, U.S. vital national interests, right? Only because the entire U.S. security orders re relies on the, the, the credibility of U.S. response uh, if something were to happen in the Baltic states, for example. What I worry mostly about is everything that's sort of below this, below Article 5, a regional crisis, something like, once again, I mean, we've had a variety of episodes like this in the last decades. I mentioned that earlier from the Balkans in the 90s to Syria more recently. It's arguably you could you could say that if you without uh, the migration crisis of 2015, Brexit would not have happened uh, in uh you know, were it not for the uh, surprise rise of, uh, of Emmanuel Macron sort of out of nowhere in French politics, Marine Le Pen would have uh, been much, much closer to the, to the presidency after two years of, uh, of terror attacks. So I, I am really worried about uh, uh, a situation like this. And this leads me to react to the question of the United States being unreliable, unpredictable. I kind of disagree with that. I mean, I know that uh, uh, there was a, uh, a lot of secrecy in the way AUKUS was negotiated and it sort of uh, took everyone by surprise. So on that specific episode, I think it's true. But I also think that a lot of people just don't really want to listen to what's being said to them in the last 10 years. You know, uh, I was rereading uh, during the Afghanistan uh, withdrawal, I was rereading uh, Bob Gates' fa famous farewell speech in 2011 uh, where he's very blunt and says, you know, in a generation, the United States is not going to want to uh, defend you uh, if uh, you don't take the, the, the steps to defend yourself. And it's once again weird because you still hear many in Europe saying, well, if we do this, we're going to drive the United States out of the continent. But the United States is already 
sort of withdrawing. First, it's, it's withdrawing, I mean, in terms of troops from Europe, if you look at the absolute numbers in the last 30 years, of course, but it is downgrading Europe as a strategic priority. I would say also, that's not for bad reasons. It's not a criticism. In a way, it is also a long-term consequences of winning the Cold War uh, and of the fact that Europe is less of a theater of great power competition than it was. So, you know, it's also because we won. And so we, we have to celebrate this. I think it's really hard for a lot of uh, transatlanticists on both sides of the Atlantic to acknowledge that reality is also sentimental uh, dimension to it, but it's um, it, it's important also to I think to 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 acknowledge this. You know, if we take another example on the unreliability, unpredictability, an episode during the Trump administration that I remember well is when uh, uh, Trump decided to withdraw troops from northeast Syria, inviting the, the Turks to get in. There was huge blowback on both sides of the Atlantic on how we were abandoning Kurdish allies and how that might have uh, security consequences on the European continent. And here again, I remember reading a lot of articles talking about unpredictability, unreliability. But Donald Trump had been saying since the campaign in 2016, once ISIS is destroyed, I'll withdraw. Every six months he was calling on the Pentagon to withdraw troops. Uh, Europeans, and it, this famously led you know, to Jim Mattis's resignation in 2018 with the open letter. And, and yet, instead of maybe you know, figuring out at a European level, where I think we had all a common interest here to stabilize, try to stabilize as much as possible Northeast Syria, say, okay, how can we step up our presence in the region progressively? Maybe work alongside the United States to replace uh, US special forces, because we're only talking about, I think, you know, 2,500 troops at the time. Um, we, we just were hoping that he didn't really mean it or that the adults in the room would manage to circumvent the decision. Uh, which happened for a few years until until it didn't. So I think this is really where uh, it's important to to look at the writing on the wall and uh, and to the to the point on uh, on decoupling. This is why I'm not so worried. I think actually having capable and strong allies is clearly in the interest of the United States. That does mean that we have to rethink the way alliances work. I think uh, it it will mean European allies that will sometimes have their own uh, strategic analysis on specific crisis. That does mean that it'll mean more and more massaging, more consultation. But right now, the alternative is between uh, consulting with sort of weak and dependent allies. So that's also why the United States does not really, you know, take the time and the effort to invest in this or having uh, uh, more capable allies uh, down the road who will be maybe trickier to manage, but more valuable. Um, there's no, I think there's no middle ground. You, you can't find a way where you have uh, capable, uh, strong allies who are so completely 100% aligned on you and, and you know, are not sometimes a headache. So that's a choice. And, that's, and, and, and this is where I think uh, the, the US uh, does need to, to rethink what, it, what it's expecting from, uh, from allies. You know, I, uh, we're talking about this yesterday and, uh, I was saying, you know, the, the opposite of autonomy is not, uh, um, you know, being aligned. The opposite of autonomy is, is weak and dependent. And that's not something you want from, from an ally. Tom, I want to just, I like just to put additional context around this. I think one thing that you hear um, you know, from a, a lot of different corners is like that this is just another fissure or another flashpoint in the transatlantic relationship. There's always troubles in the transatlantic relationship. The French are maybe always upset about something. Um, 
Do you think that's right? Is this something that we're just going to ride out? Or do, do you think that this is something more fundamental, like something that is, you know, more apt to shake the foundations of the relationship? And so it, it would require kind of a reconceptualization of the relationship or, or are we just, or can, or are we just kind of going to keep muddling through like this? I mean, what, what worries me, Andrea, is that, you know, we have a, a very Atlanticist president right now and we have people who are very Atlanticist, you know, in these positions, and we have a relatively favorable set of interlocutors, you know, in Europe. And I, I think that that configuration is a rapidly closing window of opportunity, right? That, that may not exist in three years, in 10 years, there could be an America first president again, there could be a domestically oriented president with no experience in foreign policy, very little interest in Europe, so we have a moment here where we can identify these longer term trends and try to proactively and constructively you know, engage those. Um, I'm probably a little more pessimistic than Ben about you know, Europe's ability to, to do this, um, but that doesn't sort of change my sort of view that we have to have a you know, conversation about preparing for this era. And so I know when, when we all, you know, when the community as a whole says, no, actually, you know, it's the same as it ever was and we're still super committed and these are just normal bumps. We probably think we're being helpful and we think we're trying to put the best foot forward in terms of making the case for this alliance we're also, you know, committed to. But actually, I, I think we're doing a disservice, you know, to it because, you know, it's a finite amount of time here. And I think an interesting thought experiment is, let, let's, you know, just suppose for argument's sake that Trump is president again in 2025. You know, what will we regret not having done now to prepare for that? You know, because he will reverse or somebody else could reverse overnight, you know, 95% of the great areas of cooperation that the administration is un unveiling with Europe. So what, what do we want to do that's locked in and permanent that can't really be altered? And that, that's how I sort of think about this time. I think we've been gifted this opportunity and we have to, we have to grasp it. Yeah, that's a, a really, um, a really important point that I, you know, wholeheartedly agree with. I mean, I, we on our, on our team have been talking about this in, you know, for a lack of a better term, like that, that the social, it's a social contract. I, I can't, I don't know, think of a, another way to say it, but like these kind of implicit assumptions about the way the relationship works have been in place for a really long time. Um, and it feels like that social contract kind of needs to be rewritten. And so one way to do that, like is what you said, Ben, or we've all talked about the need for these engagements to talk through and have a discussion about how together we can you know, think about what does it look like for uh, to have a more capable Europe. But, but those are kind of, that, that's all at the very kind of grand level, right? And so, that, and that's you know, not often the way that administrations work. So if you're sitting in the White House or you're in Brussels, are there some tangible touch points that are coming um, where you think that we could do things differently? You know, I'm thinking about von der Leyen announced in her European Parliament speech that there's going to be the defense summit when France takes over the presidency, or there's the Trade and Technology Council, which they were talking about whether or not they were going to delay that because of this decision. But there are these fora, you know, where the action is happening, you know, where the rubber meets the road. 
I, I don't know, it's an open-ended question, but are there, or the strategic concept for NATO, what would be some of the kind of concrete junctures that you would look at if you were in government trying to make sure that things are changing or something different is happening at those touch points? Yeah, I think, well, you, you mentioned too, I think they're really critical. Uh, the Transatlantic Take and Trade Council, I think it would be shooting ourselves in the foot both Americans and Europeans, if we were to delay or cancel it, it is important to remember that something that Europe, the European Union proposed, uh, and this is where we have, I think, an opportunity to shape uh, common norms and standards on, uh, you know, how technology is using used on on content, on on privacy, how we think about supply chains, the future of uh, artificial uh, intelligence, building a microchip strategy. I mean, all of these issues that are really key if we want to push back against Chinese digital authoritarianism. Um, and it's also, you know, here an interesting example where the United States uh, does care about really consulting and building a dialogue with Europeans because they have clout, because they matter, because for the last few years, Europeans have actually pushed forward an ambitious uh, a digital uh, agenda because they are a major standard setter uh, in the trade uh, environment. This is also why I think we have potentially that, that space to start uh, working together. I'm hearing some pessimism uh, that I find is a little you know, premature at this point. It's going to be a hard conversation. There, we have different ways of thinking about these issues, but it, it's, it's going to take time. Uh, I think the French presidency of the EU you know, will happen, incidentally, during the French presidential election. It's both a plus and a minus. On the plus side, Macron will be looking for uh, a quick, action, actionable wins, uh, and I think defense will be one of the key priorities. So, uh, you know, Jim mentioned some of the, the technical hurdles, I think that thankfully we could, uh, uh, we could try to lift. But look, the last point I want to make, you know, rebounding on what Tom said, uh, I'm not particularly optimistic, you know, I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm very worried about the trend in Europe, actually, and very, I think the crisis, the transatlantic crisis that we've been seeing for the last few years, for me, is first and foremost, a crisis of European weakness, uh, and is linked to the asymmetry in the relationship. And that will take a lot of political courage. You know, if we talk about stepping up defense spending and capabilities, that will mean sacrificing elsewhere. That will mean explaining to populations uh, why we're doing this. And some countries, and I think especially Germany, just don't feel the sense of threat uh, that would warrant, I think, a, an increase in defense spending. Maybe it's time at the European level to have a conversation about uh, the fiscal rules that are so constraining some countries uh, to increase defense spending. There is this uh, debate that's being launched right now on you know, whether we go back to the Maastricht fiscal rules once we get away from the COVID recovery phase. And maybe it's time to loosen up a little bit uh, and you know, take example of what the United States, which is actually much more, uh, it's causing some problem right now, but in general, much more flexible when uh, when it comes to this. But uh, you know, it, will, it will take really tough choices in the future. And, uh, I'll be honest, I'm not sure we're ready for that. What, what I would add to that, too, um, is, is that I, I don't think the U.S. is ready for that either. And I'm not so optimistic um, on the U.S. side that um, we have the political will at the highest levels to, to, to do something, uh, to take advantage of these junctures that um, Andrea was talking about, uh, to actually push forward something. I don't think there's the priority I don't think there is kind of the political will or capital that the administration would want to put on this. And I think there are very senior people at the White House below Biden 
um, who who don't who who uh, I'm not sure how much buy-in they've got on these kinds of things. I mean, I just I just think that um, we are not ready to provide the the muscle within the U.S. bureaucracy to say we've got these junctures coming up that we need to take advantage of. I I want you all at state and defense. Um, to put together some an approach that's more than rhetorical. I, I just don't, I don't get the sense that we've got that um, um, that 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 political will and energy uh, in the White House to put towards this. So my my optimism isn't there, but my sense of urgency is because, like Andrea said, we do have these junctures coming up. And Tom, I think your your approach in saying, you know, what would we wish we had we would have done. Um, is exactly the great way to look at this. What, what, what do we have to do now? Um, what heavy lifting do we need to do now and to try to put some things in that aren't reversible? That calls for a real commitment at the most senior levels in this government to have the bureaucracy turn and move on this. And I just don't, I don't feel it. Tom, I want to give you where I think we're about at time here. I feel like we could probably keep talking about this for a long time, but to just to give you the final word, um, you know, just to build on this line of where do we go from here, we were talking about before we hit record on the podcast that this narrative of the U.S. is back kind of no maybe is, is no longer, it no longer works. It doesn't resonate. Um, so what you know, if you were advising, would you say kind of that the new frame or the new approach should be? And if you have any ideas for what you see as maybe some important junctures or focal points where the administration should be focusing on on taking up or adopting that new frame or approach? Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, I, I think it just helps to be as strategically frank as possible about what's happening. So I, I think that they'll get a lot of mileage out of just being honest, you know, about their own um, sort of strategic assessments, because I think that that's part of the frustration is, you know, that France in particular, but Europe in general feels like they're being told what they want to hear as opposed to what they're sort of seeing. So I think that helps, but more, more broadly, I think it's, you know, there is this significant competition with China with, you know, transnational threats persisting you know, I think the job of the national security strategy and the different regional strategies is to try to unpack the president's view of that and to, you know, to advance, you know, the, 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 the conceptual framework to address all of the different potential contradictions and complications, you know, that arise. And ultimately, I think, look, I think the U.S., to the extent that U.S. commitment to Europe is, is reducing, it's partial, it's incremental, you know, and it has a stop point. Like it's not that it's going to expire at zero, right? It's it's just changing. There, if there was, I think Ben and others have talked about a Balkans crisis or something. It's unlikely the U.S. would be as involved. So we just need a, you know, a, a strategy that sort of recognizes that and recognizes that the interests always won't, you know, align, you know, perfectly. And where to go from there? Yeah. This is a really fantastic conversation. Um, I know, I mean, it's, 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 it's a, a, you know, from our professional perspective, a really interesting time in, in the transatlantic community and to be thinking through these issues. Um, the, the, the urgency that you all have kind of highlighted, I think um, is, is right on. And I think, you know, we all have a part to play in helping rewrite these rules and kind of reconceptualizing and rethinking what that relationship looks like. And then, 
you know, people have to roll up their sleeves and do the hard work of getting there. But um, I think it's conversations like these, I think that are so important. And I'm thankful that you both took the time to join us. And I'm sure our listeners are thanking you also. So thanks.